like, like a little spot. Can't stand the sound of people crumbling like around people's backs. White noise. It's like a little sound show. Sound show. In the ways a lot of us celebrate it, New Year's Eve is literally a noisy holiday. Those little horns, that spinning, clicking kind of noisemaker, fireworks. And then there's the night's theme song. It left Billy Crystal a little confused in the movie When Harry Met Sally. What does this song mean? My whole life, I don't know what this song means. I mean, should old acquaintance be forgot? Does that mean that we should forget old acquaintances? It doesn't mean that if we happen to forget them, we should remember them, which is not possible because we already forgot them. Well, maybe it just means that we should remember that we forgot them or something. <laughs> anyway, it's about old friends. But Auld Lang Syne has a meaning even beyond its words. As a ritual here in the United States and in several other places, it means New Year's Eve. The words and melody to Auld Lang Syne, more or less as we know them, came together around the turn of the 19th century in Scotland. But versions of both that melody and lyrics floated around there even earlier. Given this long timeline, I had a feeling there had to be something in the story of how it's come down to us as a New Year's Eve tradition today. So I asked my friend Brian Barone to take a poke around. Hey, Brian. Hey, John. So Brian's a writer and a graduate student in musicology and ethnomusicology. So normal human English, that means he researches music history and he studies the relationship between sound and social life. Did I get that right? That is all true. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, Brian and I also once improvised a piano forehands version of Auld Lang Syne at a New Year's Eve party. That's right, we did. So we're both qualified to be doing this. <laughs> and Brian was able to find an Auld Lang Syne you might miss if you're not paying close attention at midnight. We're at 25 seconds. Last year, 35.28 million people tuned in at midnight to watch Ryan Seacrest host Dick Clark's New Year's Rockin' Eve 2016. I don't imagine that in the moments after the ball dropped, many of those viewers focused their attention on the sound of the TV broadcast. There's too much else to do right then. But if you did listen in at that moment, this is what you'd hear. Amid the ruckus of Times Square and behind Seacrest wishing a coterie of celebrities happy years ahead, you might catch the strains of a measured and plaintive version of Old Lang Syne resounding in the square. If you were aware of U.S. broadcast TV any time before 1977, you almost certainly know what this is. It's a 1956 recording of Old Lang Syne by Guy Lombardo and the Royal Canadians, who were, from the 1930s through the late 70s, the show business heart of New Year's Eve. This record, though, is decidedly unrockin'. And so its presence on the self-consciously contemporary-sounding Dick Clark show is a bit incongruous. On the 2010 edition, one of Clark's last before his death in 2012, you can hear the Lombardo version put up cheek by jowl with the soft rock arrangement of the song. It's quite a weird moment, though, again, not that many people ever really heard it. Happy New Year!
I promise we didn't alter that. That's really what it sounded like on TV. But this moment is kind of perfect for New Year's Eve, a day when we stop to consider the old and the new coming up against each other. In that clip, a fragment of the big band era erupts into a show hosted by a chief marketer of rock and roll. But to say more about what this all means, I should introduce you to Guy Lombardo and the Royal Canadians. Let's start this way. We, we had our little band in London, Ontario, Canada when I was 13, Carmen was 12, and Fred Kreutzer, our present piano player, was 11, and Liebert, who plays the trumpet now, was our drummer, and he was nine years old. That's Guy Lombardo in a radio interview from 1959. Carmen and Liebert were his younger brothers. We had the band all the time. We were going to grammar school, and, and uh, the first two years of high, we also had the band, and then... Uh, we neglected our education from then on to come down to the States and, and uh, go to work in Cleveland, Ohio. Guy Lombardo and the Royal Canadians uh, were a family orchestra. That's Gina Lombardo. I am um, the daughter of Liebert Lombardo, who was the lead trumpet player in the band. Eventually, my uncle Victor joined the band. He was a little bit younger. And then finally, um, during the Second World War, when Kenny Gardner, the vocalist for the orchestra, was um, over in Europe fighting in the war, um, the youngest sister, my Aunt Rosemary, um, stepped in and sang with the band during those days. Don't worry about keeping track of the family tree. The important point is that this was an honest family affair. He always made it very clear to all of us that family was the most important thing, and the band was the family also. So it was all intertwined. It really wasn't like a separate thing. If you know the Lombardos at all today... You probably only know them from their New Year's Eve broadcasts. But in their heyday, they were tremendously famous. Some estimates claim that they sold between one and 300 million records. Guy Lombardo was, he was pretty much the most popular band leader of uh, the early 1930s, late 1920s, early 1930s. That's Elijah Wald. I'm a musician and writer. Who's written about the Lombardo band and their place in the popular music landscape of the early and middle 20th century. Defining Guy Lombardo's style has been a bit of a bugbear for critics and historians. He's often been loathed by listeners who prefer a hard-swinging, up-tempo, improvisation-fueled music, and who want to reserve the term jazz for just that. He defined what became known as the sweet band, which was the opposite of the hot band. Um, These days, when people say jazz, they mean what used to be called hot. But back in, in that period... There was sweet jazz and hot jazz, and sweet jazz meant what Guy Lombardo played, and everybody tried to do it. To get a sense of the difference here between sweet and hot, first let's listen to a 1939 recording of the Royal Canadians playing Old Lang Syne. The rhythm is stately and regular, and Carmen leads the famously pretty vibrato-soaked saxophone section way out front, backed by gently rippling piano arpeggios. Sweet. Then compare to Don Redmond's arrangement from 1938. Redmond had come up in the 20s playing reeds and arranging in the famous Fletcher Henderson band. This old Lang Syne, played by Redmond's own group, swings like hell and highlights the classic Redmond arranging style of excited conversation between the sections of the band. Hot. Despite the scorn of some lovers of hot music, the Lombardo band had one fan in particular who knew a thing or two about playing both hot and sweet 
Louis Armstrong. Uncle Louie, as we, we um, called him. That's Gina Lombardo again. And Louie and my dad, um, although different sounds, they truly appreciated and respected each other's um, talent. Louie, in fact, has, has um, been you know quoted as saying, you know, when he has his band in heaven, dad, my dad would be in, you know, a trumpet player in his band. Louis Armstrong famously said over and over, um, over the course of 30 or 40 years, that Guy Lombardo and the Royal Canadians were his favorite band. And that's partly, I think, simply that he liked the way they sounded. I mean, they had this gorgeous, pretty sound, and, and so did Armstrong. If what Armstrong so loved in the Royal Canadians was their sound, their timbre and technique, what many others adored was the band's easy danceability. They were very pleasant to dance to. If you enjoyed dancing at all, you didn't have to be a great dancer. Um, the Lombardo band would get you on the floor, and that's what all those bands were meant for. People enjoyed dancing to them, and it was always never a problem to dance to their music. This skill served the Lombardos especially well in their long tenure playing New Year's Eve dances. It was 1928 was the first time that they broadcast um, New Year's Eve on the radio, and I, it was um, coast to coast. It was a very big deal back then. Um, and it was so popular and so successful that that became a tradition. In 1929, the band moved the show to the Roosevelt Grill in New York. They appeared on CBS Radio before midnight and NBC after. The switchover and the new year, of course, were accompanied by Old Lang Syne. As the Washington Post once called it, a, quote, lump in the throat, I'm glad but I'm sad rendition, end quote. Here they are on Armed Forces Radio as 1945 became 46. And this is Guy Lombardo adding the musical postscript to your swing around the clock as we grab on from the grill room of the Hotel Roosevelt in New York City with the Royal Canadian sentiment for every day of the new year. The show would switch to television on CBS in 1956 and they'd move from the Roosevelt Hotel to the Waldorf Astoria in 1960. On TV at the Waldorf, the Royal Canadians rang in the new year until their last broadcast in the late 70s. But not before, starting in 1972, a challenger appeared. It is now 1973 as of now. Dick Clark's New Year's Rockin' Eve. Since his days with the TV show American Bandstand, Clark had made a career delivering young audiences to advertisers. Here he is in a 1999 interview with the Archive of American Television. I uh, put, a, put a show together as an answer to Guy Lombardo and the Royal Canadians who were on CBS. Guy was from the Waldorf Astoria Hotel, owned the, owned the marketplace. I went to NBC and said I'd like to do a rock and roll New Year's. We call it New Year's Rock and Eve. Speaking to the Boston Globe a week or so before his first attempt at the show, Dick Clark said this, quote, It'll be the classic confrontation between the contemporary music of Three Dog Night, Blood, Sweat and Tears, Al Green, Billy Preston, and Helen Reddy, and the older style of Guy Lombardo, end quote. In other words, Clark was trying to corral a youth audience that he believed had little interest in the Canadian sweet dance music. Already in 1959, Lombardo had made this measured, if skeptical, estimation of the upstart music called rock and roll. What do you think of the current craze for uh, 
it's termed rock and roll music, or is it termed just rock and roll and not music? Well, Kim, uh, there are lots of ways of, of, of defining that, that craze, as you call it. Mm -hmm. It is a craze. I'll grant you that it is a craze in the minds of some disc jockeys and in the minds of some radio stations. Rock and roll, some of it's good, I'll tell you, and some of it's very bad, but it hasn't made such a big impression on the buying public mm -hmm. as most people will be led to believe. The buying public is still sticking to the ballad or uh, straight song or uh, the better standards, better class of music. If the lines were drawn here for an intergenerational show business showdown, it'd nonetheless be a pretty restrained and polite one. Dick Clark told The Globe that he'd long been a fan of Lombardo and that he admired the Canadian's longevity. New Year's Rock and Eve was simply another example of Clark's trusted strategy. Always bank on what young people are listening to. Lombardo didn't take the challenge personally either. They were a, um, a working band, and they, they wanted the biggest slice of the audience. I mean, that just makes sense. But, you know, Guy was very understanding of the, the trends and the changes in, in music in those days. Um, but he really felt um, that his, his tried-and-true audience would, would remain. It was, you know... It was a sign of the times, and, and he understood that. I understood that. The two would compete for viewership for just five years. Lombardo held the advantage with older audiences, Clark with younger ones. Given their mutual professional respect, it was more a playing out of these hands than a proper rivalry. But all the same, there's no mistaking the very different sounds each host preferred. Guy Lombardo's last New Year's Eve performance was 1976 into 1977. He died in November of that year. We still broadcast that year on CBS, but he was no longer with us. But let's get back to where we started. The Lombardo's old Lang Syne sneaking into New Year's Rock and Eve. In recent years, the organizers of the festivities at Times Square have blasted one of the Lombardo's recordings into the crowd just after midnight. This seems to be how the Canadians have made their way onto a broadcast that used to be their competition. I love this little postscript to the story. It's like a post-season tie in the ratings game Lombardo and Clark played in the 70s. But what interests me most, I think, is the choice to play that specific recording in Times Square. The choice is about nostalgia, of course, but I'd argue that the way the Royal Canadians play on that record is already itself nostalgic. Here's something to notice. Versions of the song recorded earlier than the Lombardos tend to move a bit more quickly. And a version Beethoven arranged in the early 19th century is marked allegretto, meaning play somewhat quickly. But the Royal Canadians take the tune much more slowly here. They'd rather linger, would tarry a bit longer in the old year. Carmen Lombardo's famously sweet saxophone even sounds a bit choked up, a bit regretful of leaving things behind. So to choose this recording over others is to put a feeling of wistfulness into circulation. It's to emphasize the way New Year's might mean a kind of loss, 
to favor the past-gazing side of this two-faced holiday. In other words, it's not the version for revolutionaries or futurists or anyone looking for a clean break with the past. For that, there are others, including, by the way, some forward-bounding Lombardo versions. But this is what fascinates me about sound in public rituals, like singing Old Lang Syne at New Year's. It's how we talk to ourselves about where we've been and where we're going. Brian Barone is a writer and graduate student in musicology and ethnomusicology. You can hear more from him on a music podcast that we actually do together sometimes. It's called Tuner. This episode was edited by me, John Lagomarsino. Sound Show is a production of The Outline, a new eye-popping, hair-bending website that you can see at theoutline.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, at Outline. Thanks for listening. I'm going to go grab a lozenge or something. We'll be back next week with another sound story. Thank you.